welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, thanks, Rena, for your service. I appreciate it. It's good to be here today. Uh, this is actually my second essay meeting. Uh, my normal meetings that I go to in Kansas City are the morning meetings. And so we have, we have Monday, Wednesday, Friday meetings. And so I was at my meeting on Monday. And it's good to start out the week uh, this way through some service. But as Rena had mentioned, I, I really didn't plan my topic for today. You know, I've, I think there's a pretty good, a pretty good and strong tradition within the program of, of not preparing uh, speeches with, with this idea that, you know, your higher power will lead you. And, uh, you know, we'll see if that happens or not. Uh, but for me, uh, I, I just wanted to do it that way. And um, what, what really hit me this morning was a serenity prayer. And I think the serenity prayer is, is not, um, not only important for my recovery overall, uh, but it's also important just in my daily living. And I, I found that out this weekend. So Rena and I had actually had a discussion, I believe it was on Thursday. And that Friday, I was at a theme park with, with my family and my cell phone. I had it in my pocket on a, a roller coaster and bye-bye cell phone. So um, the cell phone fell off or, or something. It wasn't in my pocket afterwards. And I really had to practice what it means to accept uh, what happens and then, you know, change what I can and give the rest up. And so here I am calling in on, on my spouse's phone. And, uh, and going as, I, as, as life is kind of dealing it to me. So anyway, serenity prayer is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And, you know, when I entered into the program, I had heard this prayer before, uh, and I really kind of, kind of uh, likened it to, I guess, a, a Cracker Jack box prayer, you know, something that you'd see in, in a Precious Moments Chapel or uh, what is it, chicken soup for the soul, uh, kind, of a, kind of just a gimmicky prayer, right? It didn't mean much to me. Uh, but over time, as I've had to struggle and live life on life's terms in the program, I think it has a lot of, a lot of wisdom. Obviously, it's, it's the reason why it's pretty much our main program, I guess, outside of the Lord's Prayer. For many, um, it's just it's a really, a really powerful prayer. So, you know, if we, if we break it apart, uh, God is the first word, right? And one of the things that I really needed when I came into the program is I, I was desperate. Um, you know, I came into the program because, uh, not because I was caught per se, but because I was just, I was at the edge. Um, actually, the specific behavior that, that led me into the program, I was cruising at about 3 a.m., trying to pick up women coming out of, out of parties and, uh, I, I actually succeeded this one night and um, and I, I took a person back to their to their house and and wanted to you know engage in in behaviors that I shouldn't and I'm married by the way 
And uh, the, the person, uh, you know, said no, uh, and I just dropped him off. But I knew after that day, I, I can remember just feeling numb, uh, totally numb. My, my spouse was out of, out of town knowing that I, that I about cheated on, on my spouse. And, you know, that, that may not seem like, like a big deal, but that was my bottom. Um, that was coming after years of, of, of pornography, masturbation, all sorts of different things causing me untold hardship in my life. Um, and, you know, I obviously have a step one. I could go really deep into that. But that was, that was really my bottom. And that, that Thursday I was, I was in a program. Oh, well, I was in SA. I, I was, uh, Thursday night was my first meeting about five years ago. And one of the things that I had to do when I started working the steps, obviously, is, you know, realize the things that I couldn't change, which is that I am constitutionally different. I am a sexaholic. And so that makes me different from the person next to me, I guess, unless they're also in the program. And uh, I had to accept that. But the second thing that I had to do as I continued working in the steps is I had to, I had to right size with a higher power. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the program is that it's of our own conception, there's not something that we have to cling to. It's not a denomination, a sect. It's not a specific religion that we have to adhere to. We get to come to a God of our own understanding. And for me, where I came to is I had to rip everything. I, I use the analogy that, that I had a house, and I had to rip everything out of the house. So I ripped it down to the studs. And really, my studs and my foundation for my house were just love. Because for a long time, I had, I had so many of these preconceived notions about my higher power, that he was judgmental, that he didn't hear me, that he didn't care. And I, I just had to pull all that out. I said, what can I, what can I believe in? <laughs> what is the basic? I need a basic premise that I can believe in. And, and it really became love for me. And so my higher power for a long time was, of course, the group. But it was just love. Uh, beyond that, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And, you know, that's changed over time. I think I've added in some more, uh, I guess, wall and electrical and all sorts of different things into my house that, that I call my higher power. But for me, I just had to start there. And I had a spiritual director, actually, at the time, uh, well, within the program that told me, Jason, the God that you believe is not God. What he meant by that was that my conception of my higher power was an idol, it, it wasn't God. There was no way the God that was in my head was actually God. And so step two, step three helped me, helped me sort that out where I could actually, if, if I feel resistance against God, which by the way, I still do. In many ways, I have these atheistic tendencies that are inside of me. Whenever I feel that resistance, I have to go back. Um, and I actually turned my, uh, many of you all have done the higher power inventory for step two. And for me, I turned it into affirmations so that I can remember what my higher power is instead of, instead of something that it isn't. Because if I really get into the affirmations, I really think about what my higher power is now, the resistance, you know, is not as bad because it's, it's a loving God, right? It's not one that's going to judge me. It's not one that's going to control my life, micromanage me. That's not my higher power anymore. I don't have to believe in that. So anyway, that's God. And then it's great me the serenity. You know, for me, part of the program, my life, uh, and actually Rena and I had a good conversation about this, but uh, part of my story before the program is that I thought I had uh, some type of psychological issue, uh, and specifically, I thought I had ADHD, because I couldn't, I couldn't focus. Uh, my life was in shambles, it felt like, on the inside. Um, I couldn't focus on anything. I could barely get to work, and 
you know, focus on uh, just doing normal tasks. And the funny thing was, is to the outside, nobody saw this, but on the inside, I knew something was wrong. Uh, I, I felt tired all the time, what have you. So anyway, I went to several psychologists and, and got, you know, tested and what have you. And all the time they would say, no, you don't have this. I couldn't believe it. Um, but now that I'm in the program, I realize that most of that was not that I had ADHD. It's that my life, my internal life was a mess. The insides that were in me never matched what was on the outsides of others. And uh, the program has really helped me with that. And now I have an appreciation for serenity, right? This idea that that I want peace in my life, uh, whether that's through meditation or going out camping or being outdoors, these things that I've learned to do in recovery uh, that, that wouldn't have necessarily appealed to me before. Or I would have maybe, uh, this is part of my story, I would go out into the wilderness camping and I would have fear. I'd have fear of what's out there. So for now, those, those things have turned, I, I want peace. And if I don't have peace, I feel disturbance. And that disturbance is what used to lead me to act out. And now I can just meet it on life's terms. So God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. You know, for me, uh, acceptance is a big piece of the program, right? Um, trying to figure out those things in, in my life that I just need to accept. And part of that, by the way, in recovery is accepting myself. I've already talked about the acceptance of being who I am in this program, but it's also acceptance of who I am as a person, these things that I used to hate. And by the way, part of my uh, step one is that I used to have suicidal thoughts. And to this day, uh, whenever I think about, about acting out or I'm maybe in a place of disturbance, I still have mental fantasies of putting a gun in my head. Um, and that sounds extreme. I don't have a plan, by the way, if there are any psychologists on the, on the call. Uh, but for me, you know, I just had this self-hatred. Um, I hated myself because I would swear off uh, what I was doing, uh, you know, masturbation, looking at pornography, and I couldn't stop myself from doing it again. And so every time, thousands of times, I would say no and I'd do it anyway. I was powerless. And that caused me to hate myself, really, um, that, that many times I just wanted my life to end because I saw no way out. This program is the first thing that, that worked for me. You know, I'm sober four and a half years. Uh, or, you know, give or take. And uh, the, the most I could do before this program was, was two, I think, two months of not masturbating. Um, and it was white knuckle, man. Uh, it, was, it was rough. So anyway, um, a God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That second part where it talks about the courage uh, to do the things that I can. Well, what can I do? Well, I, when I got into the program, I got a sponsor. Um, that's one thing that I can do. You know, I looked around, found somebody that had something that I wanted, and I asked that person to be my sponsor. And that, you know, is something that was in my control uh, that, that I could do and that I could start taking that step. You know, every, every step within the steps took courage. You know, it, it took time. And by the way, anybody that's on this call, one of the things that, that I have shame about in the program is that it's taken me so long to get through the steps. Um, so, and by the way, my sponsor would say, well, Jason, you've been thorough. Um, don't worry about it. Like you work, you're working the steps. You've, you've been doing it, right? You've been working the program. But for me, it's taken me, I'm, I'm working step 12. It's taken me five years to get here. Okay. Uh, some, again, something I don't want to talk about and 
because I know people in AA or whatever used to do the steps in the weekend over the weekend or people in this program have, have taken a lot, a lot less time. Uh, but for me, that's my story. And again, it's part of that second half of the serenity prayer where that's something that I could do. I could take action. And this program is, is a program of action. You know, uh, myself, uh, I only speak in the I. You know, a lot of times uh, I just I, I don't have the motivation to do something. And for me, it's it's taking the action first and the feeling will follow. And so that's a piece of what I can control. And of course, uh, you know, even to step back a little bit on the serenity prayer too, a lot of life, at least in my understanding, is chaos. Uh, it's, it's not meant to be uh, rigid and formulaic and always fall into a specific pattern. Uh, Life can be chaos sometimes, and so we have to have some type of mechanism to meet life on life's terms, and that's acceptance. And then there's a piece of that, too, that, for instance, uh, my cell phone was lost on, on a roller coaster this weekend. Well, there's a part of that that I, I got really upset about, uh, but I can't control that. I, I mean, I guess I could have. I could have zipped up my pockets. I could have listened to the people that were telling me to put it in a cubby. You know, I could have done a number of things, but once that, once that happened, once that cell phone's gone, I can't control it anymore. Um, and so I really, really uh, processed through that, and I said, okay, what are my feelings? I'm frustrated. I'm angry. Uh, it was an expensive phone. I, I don't like losing money. You know, so there are all these feelings. But in the end, I, you just got to release it. You know, <laughs> you just got to surrender it and let it go because in the end, I can't, I can't make my phone reappear. Uh, but what can I do? Well, I can take the action to get a new phone, right? Because the phone for me, making phone calls to my sponsor, to other people in the program, really important part of my recovery. So I can take the action to get a new SIM card. I can take the action to buy a new phone within my budget. Um, I can discern what's going to be a good phone for me to have. Is this a good opportunity for me to get a dumb phone or do I need to get a smartphone again? So I can take the actions and the things that I can leave the rest up where it doesn't cause me disturbance, right? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Well, if I'm angry about this and I let it eat away at me, then I'm going to have that disturbance that makes me want to reach back out for the bottle, right? Which for me is obviously the things that, that I've mentioned before. So that's how the serenity prayer really uh, fits in with what I'm doing today in recovery. Um, again, something that I thought was just kind of a crackerjack box, kind of corny prayer, has ended up being something that encapsulates the entire program. All the steps in many respects are encapsulated in this one little prayer, which is, again, why I think it's such a powerful prayer for not only SA but other 12-step recovery programs. Um, anyway, I think I'm a little short on time, uh, as in I, I finished quicker than, than I needed to, but I think I'm going to stop there. That's, that's really all I have to talk about, unless other people have questions and want to know more. Happy to answer that, but I'll turn it back over to the chair. All right. Thank you, Jason. I'm sure there will be lots and lots of questions for you. So thank you again for your service today. Everyone, if you dialed in a little bit later, this is Jason in Missouri, who is our speaker today talking about the power of the serenity prayer. So it is now time for Q&A. Uh, a few rules of the roads before you um, press star six to unmute to share in participation we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing. 
how to apply the 12 steps and traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please, which means interrupting, giving advice, or criticizing someone else's share. If you feel someone is getting too explicit, you may so signify by saying my hand is raised, at which point I will uh, consult a group conscience. All right, so if you are new to this phone meeting or new to SA in general, we welcome you and you can definitely participate in this Q&A. And uh, as a reminder, please keep your questions brief for the speaker so that we can pack in as many questions as we can into this recording. If you don't want to be on the recording with your question, you can simply ask me to pause the recording and I'll be happy to do that for you. So without further ado, anyone with questions for a speaker today, please press star six to unmute your line, state your name and location, and you can move on with your question. This is Arthur in Alaska. And Go ahead, Arthur. I'm wondering, uh, thank you, if, if uh, Jason, if you have uh, able to restore intimacy with your spouse, and if so, how did you do it? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, Yes and no. I mean, it's progress, not perfection. So uh, my my experience is a little bit different than some. So some people have gone come into the program because they got caught, you know, or the spouse has threatened divorce or what have you. Um, for me, uh, I caused a lot of damage in my relationship, but I made the decision to come into this program. My wife wasn't forcing my arm. So when I first got into the program, you know, I wanted her to get into the program too and, and kind of... <laughs> you know, naively tried to twist her arm and, uh, into taking this journey with me after a while. Again, that's something I had to surrender and give up and just work the program for me. And I think, uh, my, my sponsor has given me uh, a great experience through saying, you know, this is your recovery, you work it. And so I really have taken that to heart and I've made it my program. So where, where the intimacy in my life has been restored was my wife has just seen the change over time. And, and what's happened, which is a little bit shocking, to be honest with you, is once she's seen the change in me and she sees how I react to life now, she actually asks for my advice. So when she runs into problems, um, she'll say, well, well, how would you handle this? What would you tell a sponsee? And I'm like, you know what? And, uh, and so it's been interesting because she's seen the life change. And so she started to take this journey with me. And actually, uh, the other day, she just went to her first Al-Anon meeting for another program member. But now she's like getting introduced to the program, which is kind of neat, too. And so uh, that's the part that I think has changed. What hasn't changed is I still have a lot of character defects. Um, which is something I'm going to have to continue to work the steps on. And so, for instance, I, I, have a, I have a problem, again, something else that causes me shame about not respecting my wife's body, um, about maybe touching her inappropriately or acting like she's just an object. And that's something that I have to work on a lot. And she reminds me of um, just because my immaturity, uh, when, when I want intimacy, I don't know how to express it in an adult way. And so that's something, again, the program, I know over time it will get better and I'll have to surrender it and I'll have to make amends, all the things that the steps have taught me to do, um, but it's just going to take more time. And I think it's, it's a never-ending process. And, and once I get rid of that onion layer, there's going to be another onion layer that's going to come right after it, I'm sure. Thank you, Jason. Okay, thank you, Arthur, for your question. Who would like to be next? Press star six to unmute your line so you can participate. 
This is Shirley in New York. Go ahead, Shirley. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason, for your talk. I appreciate it. Uh, a quick question. What do you do for shame? Um, you mentioned it. Yeah, like you said, you have shame that after five years, you're holding my step 12. So uh, I'm guessing that throughout the five years, you had a whole bunch of shame about other things. What do you do for shame? Thank you. Yeah, it's a good question. So shame, uh, and I was just uh, looking at something today that was talking about pornography causes shame and that makes you want to act out. And so it's a cycle that keeps feeding into itself. You know, for me, uh, one of the things that I kind of hang my hat on as to why I got sober is I became brutally honest. Like I would go to meetings and I'd talk about the craziest stuff like that was going on in my, my life and I'd put words to it. And what happened is instead of that distancing me from other people, people would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that, you know, or oh, yeah, me too. And that's the beauty of this program is I can tell uh, before this program, there were things in my life that I would say I would never tell anybody. I'm going to take this to the grave because I had so much shame about it. I figured no one would understand. Everyone would judge me. I'd end up in jail, you know, like all this different stuff. And so for me, um, being able to talk about anything, literally anything to another program member to make that call, to talk about it in meeting, sometimes it doesn't feel great. And there's actually a piece in the white book where it says, we come back to meetings regardless of how defeated we, we feel and we tell all in an act of surrender, uh, which, which that's probably paraphrased. But that is something that's, that's come up time and time again. Because there are times when I walk into a meeting and I sit down and I say, oh, my God, how am I going to talk about this, you know? And uh, I talk about it, and that shame is lifted, and I'm able to move on with another part of my day. The other thing that I would say is just I have a lot of really strong feelings. And so there's sometimes that I just make a call, and I'll talk about something I'm feeling about, and it'll, really, it'll give me just a small sliver of relief. And so I make another call and a small sliver of relief. And by the time I get down to, like, the third or the fourth call, a lot of times the power is starting to lift. And so sometimes you just have to do kind of the, the, uh, the, the deluge of calls, I guess, um, to get, get it uh, out there, to get it in other people. And then if you get to speak with somebody, of course, that's even better because then they'll probably be like me too. Oh, yeah, I've done that. And so that's, what, that's uh, I think, two of the things in the program that, that really are built in to help alleviate that shame piece of what, what we go through. Thank you, Shirley, for your question. Who else would like to be next? This is Hank from Ohio. Uh, okay, Hank in Ohio and then Phil in North Carolina. Okay. Thank you uh, for your sharing here today, uh, Jason. And uh, my question is, uh, I, I remember you talking about serenity. I remember you talking about courage. Um, I don't remember you saying a whole lot about wisdom, and I'm just wondering, uh, what have you done to help you yourself become uh, more wise and able to distinguish uh, between those categories? Yeah, I would say some of that is, is probably a good question. I mean, some of it is just working the program, you know, and, and getting some more time and going through the steps, because the steps are really a lifestyle. That's what I've realized. You know, I probably came into the program just thinking, oh, well, let's check some boxes and get sober. And then it's kind of a bait and switch where you get into the steps. 
And then you're like, oh, this is something that I have to integrate in my life and practice in all my affairs. And it becomes a lifestyle change. You know, people will actually the, the folks that I hear uh, that are sober, um, they're saying things like, oh, we'll work a step four on it, you know, or do a steps one, two and three. And at first you're like, what does that even mean? But then you realize it's it's a process. Like if I feel a resentment, I can go and do a step four on it and and try to think through. And each time that I do something like that, that I'm actively working the program, that I'm showing up for another day, that I'm working through the steps, that I'm trying to integrate it, then I'm learning these little micro experiences that that make me a wiser person. You know, next time that I deal with resentment after doing a step four on it, I start to see a pattern and then I can maybe uh, see it as a character defect and then maybe I can start surrendering it. Maybe I can get some victory over it. So I would say that's probably part of it. Sponsorship, of course, has a piece to do with that, too. Uh, And it's just, you know, I don't think there's anything special about sponsorship per se. It's just that it's way easier to tell faults and flaws and things in someone else's life than it is in your own. There are still things that I have huge blind spots with, um, and this program being one of them. Sometimes I just need somebody to call me out. So, for instance, let me give you one example there. Um, I used to, earlier in the program, I, was, I went to the dentist, and there was a dental hygienist that I found very attractive. And I went home, and I searched this person's name in a social media site, and I looked up their profile you know, just to see pictures and to try to connect with this person in, in the wrong way, right? Making a misconnection. I, I brought that up to my sponsor and he was like, Jason, like that sounds like stocking. You need to add that to your list. If you do that again, I want you to reset your sobriety date. And I'm like, oh, wow. I didn't even think it was a big deal. It was a huge blind spot for me. And here my sponsor is telling me, hey, that's like stocking. That's a very big deal, Jason. Don't do that again. Um, so, you know, that, that was something that someone else was able to see that, that I wasn't. And that's, uh, in many ways, like outsourced wisdom. I don't have to have that wisdom, but being able to outsource it to my sponsor is really important. Thank you, Jason. Hey, this is Phil, Sexaholic, North Carolina. Thanks so much, Jason, for um, the service of sharing your story with us. I think you've given some answers already about specifically is um, you talked about dealing with kind of anger flaring up and um, you know, specific examples, getting upset and angry about things. Uh, what have you found helpful uh, for that? Oh man, that's a great question. I anger is anger is funny. Um, not funny, literally, but it's, it's a funny thing because what I've found, and I'm not like in an anger management program, so it may be different for different people uh, that maybe have like kind of a, a more increased level of anger. But for my, my level of anger, um, which, which is not saying that it's small by any means, I definitely have a lot of it. I've found that when I, when I find anger in my life, it's always something deeper. And so it's not about the anger necessarily. It's about I feel insecure or maybe there's a vulnerability or there's or a lot of times for me, it's fear uh, for sure. It's like, well, what am I what am I fearful about uh, and, and what is that doing? So I for me, it's, it's taught me again. We talked about wisdom and how these kind of micro situations build wisdom. For me, it's like seeing anger pop up so many times and thinking about it and trying to think through what's going on. 
it is, it's ended up being, okay, well, this isn't anger. Like if I get anger at my wife, it's because something else is going on. There's some other disturbance and where is that disturbance coming from? So I have to dig deeper than the anger to find the root cause. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Anyone else with a question? Cindy, sexaholic from New Jersey. Go ahead, Cindy. Thank you, Rena, for your service today. And Brother Jason, um, just thank you for this, uh, this share. I unfortunately didn't hear from the beginning, so I may be asking a question you have already covered uh, about your relationship and, and status in life. I, I'm curious about kids, if there's kids in the picture and uh, how you've been working with them to restore relationship. And then I just want to tell you, brother, you are not alone. I, in the working at a snail's pace, just earlier today, I proclaimed myself the queen of the slow trudgers because I'm getting on, coming up on five years, and I'm on step nine. But I wouldn't have changed one single thing up to this point. I think that for me personally, step work is um, God-directed, just like life. Life has to be on God's terms and timing. So again, thank you for your share. Apologies if uh, you've already addressed this, and I look forward to hearing more. I pass. Yeah, I haven't addressed that. And, and by the way, thank you. I mean, I feel emotional about it. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, it's just, you know, there is, for me, there's a lot of shame there. And when, when I realized, uh, I think maybe this is just growth in the program, but I realized, okay, that's my story. And so I need to talk about it because there's other people out there. I've never talked about anything in the program. And nobody's like, oh, nobody's ever done that before. You know, like it's always somebody else out there is, has a similar experience. It's encouraging to them. And so, yeah, I was like, if, if I have a lot of shame on this, I need to talk about it because other people out there are probably having the exact same experience. And so it's really good to hear that. Yes, the answer is yes. I have I have kids. Um, I have a, a two and a half year old and four and a half year old, and they just uh, man, uh, how do you even talk about parenting, right? Um, the the program I think gives context for that work. I think it's terrifying on one hand because I'll see things in my son that it's like, oh my gosh, he does the same things I did when I was a kid, and he can't express his emotions, and you know, like all these different things that make me terrified. But on the other hand, there's there's a lot of acceptance too. So we were we were staying at a, a kind of a cabin when we took our, our mini vacation this week, and uh, one of my kids just threw this, uh, and it's a family oriented cabin. So there's something that I think is my my spouse's great grandparents like pottery, and my two and a half year old daughter just threw it across across the room, it hit the floor, and it splintered. And so there's a part of me that immediately goes to you're a bad parent. Um, why the heck did you let that happen? Nobody else is doing this. Like nobody else that stays in this cabin is breaking things like your kids are terrible, you know, goes to that place. Uh, but the truth is, is like, there's probably nothing I could have done. Like this happens when you have kids. It's unfortunate that it was a family heirloom, right? Um, but it probably wasn't that I was a bad parent. It's just that kids throw stuff like they don't have boundaries yet. And so for me, again, serenity prayer. Um, I even had this conversation with my wife. I just said, you know, I mean, I, I think other people are doing this. You know, this idea that it's never happened before or how to make it three generations. And my kid just destroyed it. 
I'm like, well, there are probably 50 other items in the cabin that never made it through those three generations. We just see the 10 that did, you know? And so uh, I think that's how, I, again, serenity prayer, I think is really applicable to that type of work because there's some things that you can change and some things you can't. And there are some things that I've found are innate to my personality that aren't going to change, even with the program. Same with my kids. They're going to have certain dispositions and, and maybe they'll be prone to anger or prone to other things that may not really change that much, just who they are. And I can't change that. So uh, anyway, I hope that helps a little bit. Indeed. Thank you. All right. Let's have a few more people who may want to ask our speaker, Jason in Missouri, some questions. And thank you, Cindy, for your question. Anyone? Um, <clears throat> I do have a question. You were talking about the pivot, uh, surrender the fact that there are so many things you could have done to not lose your phone and all the ways you could beat yourself up versus all the ways you can take action and kind of put distance between yourself and, and beating yourself up. So can you use any other examples of how um, how you keep that beating yourself obsession to a minimum so that it's not entrenched and so that it's not working you over for days on end. Um, that's something I tend to struggle with when I make a mistake that I find all the ways that I'm uh, not good enough or whatnot <laughs> and that I could have known or should have known, um, you know, avoidable problems. So how do you deal how do you deal with those things? Yeah, good question. One is, one is I, I don't know how. That's one answer. I actually remember checking in with one of my closest program friends, and, uh, and I basically just told him, hey, I'm feeling this feeling, and I can feel it in my gut. And I had done something wrong, just like what you'd outlined, and I was trying to remember the specific example so I could tell you, but it was it was most likely just something pretty normal, right, that happens. Mistakes, oh, I remember what it was. It was that I hadn't turned in paperwork uh, to meet a deadline, and I didn't even know when the deadline was. Like, I discovered the deadline that day, and uh, I didn't know about it, and I just discovered that I was qualified for this program, and I had missed the deadline by a day. So I had no control over this, right? I didn't know it beforehand, nothing. But there was still part of me that felt like I had done something wrong, like I had returned to that five-year-old shoes, and, you know, one of my parents was yelling at me, telling me to pay attention, you know? Um, that's where I went back to, and I could feel it physically in my gut, like right at my stomach. I could feel that tension, um, like I'd done something wrong. And so I called this program member, and I basically told him, hey, man, this is what's going on. Here's the situation, and I feel this feeling in my gut. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know how to handle this. I'm just making a call because I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> you know? That was the call. Like, I didn't have a solution. He wasn't even on the phone. I left a voicemail, and he called me back, and he just said, oh, yeah, me too. You know, I have that feeling. And so I, there was no solution there. It was just that I was talking about it, you know, and that I was acknowledging that it was there. Uh, acknowledging that this was a problem, but I don't have an answer for it yet. 
Um, the second thing that I would say is maybe more of a solution-based thing to this is that I have to accept that I make mistakes, which is something that I, I'm, you know, I'm a triplet. I have a brother. Um, so, you know, my mom, God bless her, like had to keep us all in mind. She had four kids and, and for a long time she was a single mom. And so her kids acting properly and doing things right was, was a survival mechanism, you know? And so, but for me, that's left me with this, this feeling that like I have to do everything right or I'm not good enough. And so I have to, I have to accept that I make mistakes. Like when I lost my cell phone this weekend, damn, that was a bad thing. I shouldn't have done it, but I made a mistake. Like I'm going to make mistakes and everybody makes mistakes. I cannot be perfect. That is not an attainable goal. And so when I make a stupid mistake, like lose my phone, when I literally have zippable pockets, like that's just going to happen. And, uh, and my wife and I even call that the blank happens category. <laughs> I won't say the word, um, but we have this category that in our marriage we say, okay, that's the blank happens category. Like can't control it. It's going to happen. Just file it away in the blank happens category. Okay. Um, and so it's acceptance that I'm going to make mistakes that I'm, that I'm not perfect. All right. Thank you for that answer. Go ahead, Ben in Arkansas. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, first off, great, great talk. It's really inspiring, I found out, to, <laughs> to hear people who are also human. Uh, uh, sometimes I put myself on this, uh, on this pedestal where I, I feel like, you know, it's okay for everyone else to make mistakes, but I'm not allowed to. Um, and I, I think this, this kind of ties into my question. Uh, when do you decide that you're done with a step? Thanks, I'll pass. Yeah, good question. Uh, I think it's pretty, in my experience, it's a pretty simple answer. I present what I've done to my sponsor, and then I ask him, like, do you want me to move on? And if he says yes, then I move on. <laughs> if he says no, then I don't. Uh, luckily, I've, I've been pretty thorough. Um, there's been a few times that maybe he said, hey, do this, or you forgot this exercise or what have you. And he's very good at standing his ground. He's not like, ah, well, you didn't get it done this time. Go on to the next one. He, you know, says, go do that exercise. But it's, it's pretty simple for me. I, I really don't proceed until my guide tells me I can proceed. And so um, that, uh, that answers that question, I guess. It's been a little bit harder in the pandemic because there's not as much – we can't – for a while, we couldn't meet face-to-face, and so it was more kind of like delivering a book to his house where he could write some feedback or what have you. Um, but generally speaking, it's, it's when he tells me to. Thank you, Ben, for your question. I think there might be one more person who wants to squeeze in a question while we're recording. Bruce, Massachusetts. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, so you were talking about how you re- used to relapse a lot and got to the point where you were hating yourself. And um, Was there something you can put your finger on where something changed or shifted or you did something different or like just started getting into the steps or some thing or things that you can put your finger on that changed so that you are where you are now? 
Yeah, good question. Um, uh, there's there's a few a few answers here. One is one is I you know I I would say just keep working until it works right. Um, it's a, it seems to be a different timeline for most people. You know, you have some folks that get into the program they're immediately sober, like they have this, this religious experience, never touch the bottle again. You know, um, that wasn't my experience. Um, you have some people who, who get it fairly quickly and it sticks. You have some people who get it fairly quickly. It sticks for a while and then they relapse and then they get back in again. You have some people that go out. I mean, it just seems to be different from everybody. So I would say that the second thing is when I relapsed about six times in the program and I realized there was one thing in common and it was alcohol. And I know this isn't that program, right? But I realized in this program, I had to give up alcohol. So that's another answer. Uh, when I gave up alcohol, there wasn't as much that, you know, I'd have lowered inhibitions and next thing you know, I went to pornography or masturbated or whatever. Um, so that's another answer. The third answer is we had someone coming from Chicago to our group, moved into Kansas City. And Chicago has a very kind of um, intense program and in that it's very rigorously honest. You know, they're always talking about, oh, well, I, you know, watch TV for 15 minutes and this is what, we, you know, like everything's very... Uh, very uh, rigorously honest. That's the way their program is in Chicago. So I was very much inspired by this when this person came into our program and said, oh, well, I looked at something on the internet for five seconds or I had fantasy for 10 seconds or, you know, I did this or that or the other. And it taught me to be rigorously honest, which if you read through kind of that, that main reading from AA, it talks about the only thing that's required to get sober is honesty. That was true for me. Now, of course, it was working the steps and working with a sponsor and making calls. I mean, when I first got in the program, I was going to international conferences and regional conferences, making five calls a day and doing whatever I had to do to survive. But um, it, it came down for me, I think, in many respects, just to being rigorously honest in programs. I would talk about things that I'd walk into a program and feel like ripping off my arm to talk about what I had to talk about, but I'd do it. It's what I needed to do to stay sober. And there's still days that I walk in that I'm like, oh, man, I cannot share this today. Um, and I do it, you know. And there's very rarely a time that I ever, I think I've maybe passed one time in a share my entire time in the program because I just know I need to talk. <laughs> I need to get this stuff out. And so um, that's what I would say. Rigorous honesty, I think, is one of the things that I definitely point to as a turning point for sobriety. I just had to get honest. And I had to tell other people. And I had to bring them into my situation talk about the things I didn't want to talk about. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Bruce. And we're going to have a quick pause for announcements and then um, go into the parking lot session. So, Jason, thank you so very much for your service today. Jason and Missouri today talking about the power of the serenity prayer. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.